I'd invite you to take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. We make our way through this book of Genesis. Um, It's been a a joy to study the faith of Abraham and and those who are even before Abraham. And it's just good to see the examples that God sets before us and the principles are laid out in the New Testament. We see the examples in the Old Testament and that's a joy for us. Genesis chapter 21 I'll begin reading in verse 22. Now it happened at that time that Abimelech and Pichol, the commander of of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. So now swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my offspring or my posterity. But according to the loving kindness that I have shown you, you shall show me and the land in which I have, you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them cut a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean? which you have set by themselves. And he said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so that they may be a a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called the place Beersheba because there there the two swore an oath. So they cut a covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech and Pichol, the commander of the, his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and they called upon the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for just the privilege of being able to go through your word and understand its meaning and then, Lord, apply it to our life. I pray that we would be diligent, that we would be clear. And then, Lord, uh, may we work these things out in our life um, that is that it would be pleasing to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are three Uh, elements here um, of this passage that we need to to know before we're going to be able to understand this passage. And and I want to lay these things out to you. Uh, There's three dynamics that you need to understand. First of all, God's blessing. You'll see this on the, the screen here. There's three, first of all, blessing. God's blessing that's upon Abraham. Abraham was no poor shepherd boy. Sometimes we, we kind of see that. We kind of see that depicted in pictures or, or whatever, that he was just this lone wolf out there, just kind of a shepherd boy. But 
God called Abraham to leave his his house in Ur and back in Genesis chapter 12. And we see God's hand of blessing on Abraham's life. He God promised Abraham that he would give him a name, make his name great. He would give him land, give him a son and make of him a great nation. And that he would bla- that Abraham then would be a blessing to all of the nations. And at this time in his life, Abraham was a force to be reckoned with. He was probably about 103 years old of age at this point. And, and he was being noticed by other kings in the area. And he could be a, a threat to any of the nations. He had the resources. He had the protection. He had the management, the management skills to sustain himself. He can go into any unpopulated area and be just fine. He was not just surviving. He was thriving. God was blessing his life. Also, we need to understand the timing here. At the very first verse that I read, he says, at this time. And it was around the same time that uh, Abraham had to send Hagar away and Ishmael, her son. Because they didn't want any conflict between Ishmael and Isaac, the the newest one, he is Abraham's second son. Ishmael's firstborn was born of the servant woman. And Isaac, the one that God promised, was born of uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah. He was the, the son of the covenant, the son of promise that God had uh, given to Abraham. And that they were celebrating his that, that he was weaned. He is no longer an infant. He is now... A little boy and he was thriving as well. So God had kept his promise. And that was the first step to uh, Abraham. The first step that that God had taken so that anybody could see that God's hand of blessing was on him. And Abraham's heir then, Isaac, would receive all of those blessings, all of the wealth that Abraham had accrued. But we also need to understand another thing. We... We need to understand the spiritual maturity that Abraham had in his life by this time. And you, you, you see this in this passage. We would consider him a father of the faith. And we see that in John chapter 1. That would be the term. He would be a father. He had walked with God for some time now. He, he had a, a full understanding, a deeper understanding of who God was. And he was walking with God He knew God's ways. He had depended upon God. He had trusted God's word. He had seen God work in his life in various situations. He knew God's holy character. He knew God's gentle nature. And it brings about a new perspective on Abraham's life. And you kind of see this in in subtle ways that he sees God now as an everlasting God. Now, we've seen spiritual maturity in the past before with Abraham's life, but now you see a settledness, a rest, a peace, and an easeness maybe in, in Abraham's life. He is, is what we would call, or I would call, a seasoned warrior. A seasoned warrior. And we have seasoned warriors in this room right now. And I think that's a, a fitting term for any, any old age group that you want to, to call it of Christians. Now we have a group that meets here 
And, and this is a, a good title. Seasoned warriors is a good title for that group. Seasoned warrior. That's the way we need to think about Abraham and these older people that have walked spiritually in the path of the Lord and walking with the Lord for many, many years. There's a spiritual maturity there. And Abraham's faith had become strong, settled at peace. And his perspective was mature and deep and theological. And and we see that in this passage. We see that kind of Abraham here. And so the point of this passage is to show God's blessing upon Abraham's life. That that Abraham was strong and, and robust. And imposing and uh, formidable to any king that would be that would be seeing him and would be watching. God had blessed Abraham, and and the land actually belonged to him by divine right, but really it belonged to him just by might. Abraham was strong. God's hand of blessing was was evident, even at this southernmost point of Israel. That's what we would call it today, Israel. This was Beersheba. And uh, Moses wanted the children of Israel, the point of this passage is that Moses wanted the children of Israel to, to see the robustness of Abraham, to see his faith, to see the wealth that God had blessed him with, to see his, uh, this time of life that Abraham was going into, that God had worked. God had given him this land, and, and Israel then has the right to go in and take that land. And it really is amazing for us. We, we look at this, and we should think to ourselves, it's amazing what God can do with just one man. One man that trusts Him. One man that is a, a man of faith. One godly man, or one godly woman. And Abraham was known for his strong faith, and he's an example to All of us. And we see that in the New Testament. He's lifted up because of his faith and trust in God. And it causes us to want to examine our own faith and say, do we have that kind of faith? That's the kind of faith that I want. And we have to ask the question, what are the marks of that kind of faith? What what does that faith look like? And we've been looking at that in the past few weeks. It's a rejection of sins, the pursuing of God, an enduring quality. But we've also seen that that faith has to grow. That faith has to, has to mature. It's a gift from God. Um, and it's certainly not man-made. It's not something that I have to conjure up within myself. But it's a gift that Peter said we add to. That, that it, it grows. It grows. It grows in the good times when God is blessing us. But mostly it grows in the, in the times of of stress, we might say. The, the times of pain, the times of anguish, the, the times of, of tribulation and trouble in our life. Those, just like a, a muscle has to be broken down before it can be rebuilt. That, that's our faith. Many times it has to be broken so that there can be a maturing process here. Now, the w- question that I would like to ask today is, is what does that faith look like in public What does that faith look like in in public? Because this is a very public thing. In fact, pretty much everything Abraham does now is a public thing because he's he's just so seen, so uh, uh, obvious to to anybody that would observe him. And I want to make three observations, three observations of Abraham's life here, of this strong, mature faith 
that I, I think that should mark our lives. Our lives should be marked by these things. Number one is mature faith will be clearly seen by others. Now, I don't want to take that for granted, but that is so true. Strong, mature faith is going to be evident to other people. And God's work in Abraham's life was noticeable. Abraham was, uh, Abraham's faith was evident for anybody that would want to, to look for that kind of faith. In Abraham's faith, his life pointed to the God that he served. That's why that's important. Why is it visible? Because it points to the God that we serve. Now, look at verse 22. Now, it happened at that time that Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, Abimelech was a, a king, was one of the kings from the Philistine nation, which probably wasn't even a fully developed nation at that time. This group of people, the Philistines, probably wasn't even called the Philistines at, at this at this point. It was really they invaded this section uh, about a thousand years later. But this, these would be early Philistines. They would have come from the, the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea, the Aegean Sea, and they had mastered that area. They were a coastal people. They had built boats and they had they knew how to do that. And they knew how to invade lands. They knew how to take over. And, and uh, this would have been an early king in that, uh, in that nation. Probably lived a lot further away, but he was just declaring himself the owner of this, of this area, as we'll see. But it was hard for Israel to get rid of the Philistines. And if you'll remember, and it was, I think it's about a thousand years after this, that David was dealing with Goliath. And it was hard to push the Philistines out of Egypt or Israel. And God is, uh, and Abimelech says, and he notices, he says, God is with you in whatever you do. Abraham's wealth, Abraham's uh, ability to overcome his size, his skill, his longevity, his wisdom, all of that scene, it's, it's evident to anybody that would look, and especially to kings, because that would have been a threat to them. Who's the biggest threat? Well, Abraham is. And they would have seen that. And obviously, um, the God that Abraham was serving was blessing Abraham in all that he did. That's a wonderful thing. <laughs> that, that's amazing. When God gets a hold of a heart, when God gets a hold of a life, it, it becomes evident. And that's, uh, that, that goes back to our core principle. If you remember back, genu- uh, genuine faith is, the, is at the very core of who we are. And it's seen in the direction of our life. And it's seen in our dependence upon God. It's faith. It, it just can't be hidden. It just can't be hidden. And Abraham's life was pointing to the God that he serves. Now, do you, you need to understand that, especially in the times in which Abraham was uh, living. Everyone at that time would have been um, a believer in some God. And there was multiple gods, but they would have believed some God. They, weren't, uh, they were not dumb enough to be atheists. Atheists just deny that there's an existence of God. Well, that's foolish. Anybody can see clearly that there's a God, there's a creator. Somebody made this. 
In fact, somebody sustaining this world, and they understood that. That was not a surprise. They were, they were not dumb. They could see that, that somebody was sustaining this world, and this world was created to sustain life. And we were dependent upon that. So they were worshiping the sun god. They were worshiping the moon, the, the stars, anything that would have been related to that nature. They were all worshiping something. It was just a matter of the character of the god that they were worshiping. What, what god was Abraham worshiping? And the god, the word that is used, Abimelech uses here, is kind of the generic term for god. And the real question is, is what is the character of this God that you're worshiping? But Abimelech doesn't really go that far. You should have asked, what, what's the standards? What, what, do you, what do you need to know about this God? Now, Moses points this out, that this is a very public thing. This is something that, uh, that, that uh, the world should be asking of every believer. And it was to be asked, Moses pointed out, that this is what's going to be asked of the children of Israel. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 in verse 5, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as Yahweh. So Moses is telling the children of Israel, here's what I've taught you, these statutes and judgments just as Yahweh has commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you will enter to possess it. And you shall keep and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all of these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh, our God, is whenever we call upon Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law? That was the visible part. God gets a hold of this nation so that his words and his principles, his righteousness, his statutes and judgments can be lived out in their life and seen by everybody else and say, what kind of God are you worshiping here? And it points to God. That's that's the point. That's it. And we see in the New Testament what, is, what, what happens. The Holy Spirit comes down, works in our heart, and produces fruit of love and joy and characteristics of God Himself that point, that point to God. And then 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says we to add to that faith, character. Character. Develop that thing, that, those things into our life. Because God does not transform our life. He does not call us to hide us under a bushel, does He? No, to put us on a candlestick. We are a city that's set on a hill. That's the point. He wants us to be visible. He works in our life so that we can be out there and, and visible. Now, what distinguishes us? What distinguishes us from anyone else? Is it is it our wealth? Is it our health? No, we, we know better than that. It's, it's the Word of God working in our life. The, the thing that distinguishes us as believers is God transforming us, transforming our lives, and moving us toward His holy nature, His holy character, His wisdom, His principles, the fact that He is working in our life. And those things are going to be evident. Whenever God does a miracle, it's evident, right? 
the very first day, let there be light. It's evident. Anybody could see it. It caused the world into existence. Caused the universe into existence. Everybody can see it. There's evidence there. Creation. Raising Lazarus from the dead. It's evident. He's alive. We see him. Feeding the 5,000. The walls of Jericho just coming down at the blast of a trumpet. <clears throat> the plagues. Any, anything that God does as far as a miracle, it's going to be evident. It's going to be seen. And your life, if you're a believer, that's a miraculous thing. Your salvation is to be evident. It is to be seen by God. Now, what, what is to be seen? Um, He's called us so that He can work in our life, transform our life, so that people can see our godly character. We don't have to get it tattooed on our forehead. We don't have to to get our Jesus t-shirts to to show people that we're believers. We don't have to get the cross tattooed on our forearms. or We don't have to get our... Uh, wear certain clothing or wear our hair a certain way. No, it's our godly character. It's godly character. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I, I want to go through some of these and, because these things reflect God and these things are to be worked out in our, in our life. Let me give you, uh, this is uh, some of the work that we have been going through on Wednesday nights uh, with, with my men's group. We've been working through just godly character traits, and I want to go through some of these. And you begin to see them on the screen. I don't know if they're, they're very, very clear, but there's, there's 25 of them or so. So just be patient with me. Let's just go through these quickly. Boldness. Boldness is a godly character. The ability to stand with conviction based upon the Word of God. Compassion. Sensitive to the needs and sufferings of others and the desire to help. Contentment, being satisfied with what the Lord provides. Courage or courageous, being courageous. The ability to, to, comf- to confront difficulties in danger uh, or even dangerous situations or uh, depending upon the strength that the Lord provides. Dependable, the habit of being reliable with responsibility. Determined. Fulfilling God-given responsibilities, no matter how you feel or what the difficulties are. Dignity, that life is, living in light of the fact that life is a gift from God and is not to be degraded, but respected, taken seriously. Diligence, the ability to work consistently and carefully without delay. Discernment, the ability to tell the truth from error or truth from almost error. Discernment. Discreet. Being discreet. A uh, critical judge of what is correct and proper in any situation. I love that. Empathy. Understanding others well enough so as to bear their burdens through prayer and help. Enthusiasm, the pursuit of the things of the Lord with zeal and tenacity, faithfulness, fulfilling one's responsibility before God to completion, generosity, the, the pattern of sharing unselfishly one's time, money, and talent with others, gentleness, 
just being gentle, the habit of, of being caring and thoughtful toward others. Honesty, the habit of being truthful, fair, and forthright. Humility, the habit of being uh, submissive to divine will with a sense of unworthiness in God's sight. Integrity, the character trait of living in singleness of heart and mind before the Lord. Joy, a deep emotional peace and happiness that, that, uh, deta- that is detached from circumstances. Obedience, the habit of voluntarily prompt and fulfill, uh, prompt fulfillment of God's commands. Let me throw another one in here that's not on there, and that's peace. A rest, a settledness in our hearts and minds, and patience. The ability to, to wait and endure and tolerate even to, the, even to the point of suffering in the circumstances of a sovereign God. Reverence, respect and awe of the Lord and the things of the Lord. Self-control, the ability to restrain one's body, one's thoughts, one's emotions. Thankfulness. The habit of expressing gratitude for all the, all things in all situations. And that's a lot. But that's what people see. Those kind of character traits that we're developing in our life. The Holy Spirit's working those in our life. And Paul says those are things that adorn the doctrine of God. When we understand the doctrine of God, those are the things that are beginning to work out in our life. That is maturity. That's what people in the world are going to see. So mature faith is a visible thing. It's visibly clear to everyone who cares to look. And I have to ask you, are you, are there characters being worked out in your life? Do you see that? Is that what other people see in your life? Number two, mature faith, mature faith will be gracious toward others. A mature, strong faith is going to be gracious toward others. And again, I think Abraham is a, a wonderful example here of, of grace. Abraham's grace and humility toward others is the very character uh, characteristic of, of godliness. Now, notice this in verse 23. So Abimelech comes to Abraham and he says, God is with you in all that you do, so now swear to me, here by God, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or my posterity. But according to the loving kindness which I have shown you, you shall show me in the land and the land in which you sojourn. Now Bimelech is, is coming to me, coming to Abraham, and notice the, the word me and my. He he's he's wanting he's a king that's really in defense here. He, he, he recognizes that he is a little vulnerable here. And he's, he's kind of coming to Abraham and he's saying, now I want you to, to swear to me, make this covenant with me to, deal, to not deal falsely with me. And to notice, not with me and my offspring and my posterity. I mean, he's thinking long term into the future. This is a king that's, that's kind of groveling. 
This is a king that's, that's kind of begging. He senses the threat that, that Abraham could be to his little kingdom here. And, and he doesn't want any trouble with Abraham. And he's coming and, and kind of begging with uh, Abraham. But he's, he's trying to pretend to be gracious. He, he's pretending to be the gracious one here. And Abraham has no problems with that in verse 24. And Abraham says, I swear it. There's no reason for me to to have aggression toward you. That's not going to be a problem. But Abraham raises an issue, verse 25. He says, but, and he's pointing out some inconsistencies with Abimelech's story. Abimelech's painting himself as this gracious king, allowing Abraham to, to come in and live among him. But... But uh, Abraham is painting a, a little bit different story here. And the word, it says, but Abraham reproved Abimelech about this well. The word reproved there is to, to chide him, to, to correct him, to, to kind of rebuke him in a, in a gracious way. So, so now Abimelech is, is portraying himself as the gracious one here, but Abraham is actually the one that's being gracious. I want you, you need to see that. Abraham is, you, you see it in, in his actions, in his speech, in, in everything that he does. Abraham is very, very gracious here. And he's graciously pointing out to Abimelech um, that Abimelech was, was uh, just, his grace is just a pretense. Now, the situation here is that Abimelech's servants had taken control over one of Abraham's uh, wells that he had dug. Now, water was important in that day, right? And in that uh, time, that era, in the arid uh, area that they would have been in the wilderness there. And they would have needed water for their people, for their servants, and for their flocks. Abraham had not mentioned this to Abimelech up till this time. But since he was here, he's going to bring it up. He had every right to bring it up. But he was being gracious in the hold back and not complain to Abimelech. And he says this. Let me just read the passage. But Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I, and he gives three little points here. He says, I did not know. I, I do not know who was, has done this thing. You did not tell me nor did I hear it until today. Three little things there. He denies it. I didn't do it. And then he kind of turns it back on Abraham. Really, you're to blame. You didn't tell me. You should have come to me. Isn't that consistent with just kind of the unsaved pattern of thought? Just shift the blame. And then completely say, oh, this is the first time I've heard about it. First time I've heard about it. It's Abraham's... Abraham's fault to not bringing it to his attention. But it was Abimelech's servants that had done this. And it's probably, he's probably just lying to Abraham. And what we see then is, is Abraham is, again, being very gracious. Verse 7, Abraham doesn't even, or verse 27, Abraham doesn't even uh, acknowledge what he had said. And Abraham just kind of ignores the comment. Uh, nothing more needed to be said. He wasn't going to push the issue, but he was pointing out that, that Abimelech was not being as straightforward as, with him as, as uh, you would think. And Abraham's willingness to forgive, even though he wouldn't even admit it, 
His willingness to forgive was there. And again, you see the grace of Abraham. And he cut a covenant, verse 27. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two of them cut a covenant. Now that's what you would have done. You would have taken uh, these animals. You would have cut them in half. Put one on one side and the other on the other side. They would pass through together. And what they're saying in doing that is, is if we break this covenant, if I break this covenant, then this will be what will happen to me. It's a very sobering, very serious thing. And so Abraham was willing to, to do that. He was no threat. Then, verse 28, then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what do, you, what do these seven ewe lambs mean which you have set about by themselves? Now, he, Abraham knows what he's doing. He sets these seven ewe lambs aside. What is he doing? On top of his graciousness, on top of his gracious speech, he is he's going to pay for this well that he dug. It's rightfully his. But he's going to just to make sure there's no complaints down the line. Because this king is, is not as truthful as he pretends to be. Abraham is going to go ahead and pay. And again, you see the grace of Abraham. Just dealing graciously with this ungodly king. This the king that's pretending to be uh, godly. And notice that Abimelech didn't refuse this. He, he, he received these things. And then both of them cut this covenant. In verse 30, he says, You shall take these seven ewe lambs. Now notice Abraham's speech here because it's so gracious. Uh, take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so that... It may be a witness to me so that I, when I look at my flock, I see, ah, there's seven missing. I'm going to know. Oh, yeah, I cut this covenant and I and he says a witness to me that I dug this well. Now, again, this is gracious speech. Abraham knows what he's doing. The burden of proof is on uh, is on Abimelech now. And Abimelech has been given these sheep to pay for any inconvenience and, and this well. But Abraham is the one who dug this well. And again, you just see grace. 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 And the two of them cut the covenant. There's a, there's a rich man. And he pretends to be poor. And he goes out on the street. And he, he, he just he acts like a miser. His children can't get anything out of him. And he, he pretends to have nothing. Pretends to, to, uh, to be uh, uh, very, very poor and very selfish. That would be wrong, right? Abraham has been graciously, abundantly supplied everything that he would want. And it would be just wrong for Abraham to not be gracious. And everybody would see that. Because that's exactly the way Christian life is. And, and, and Abraham knows that. He has, he has received such grace from the, the Lord. And he is just extending that grace. And that's what genuine faith does. When God gets a hold of a life, when God works in a life, and there's grace there, there's an extension of that grace to everyone else. And that's what you see. And there's evidence of God at work in Abraham's life. So again, very, very visible. Let me give you two evidence. And number one, 
he could see it in, in Abraham's humility. Abraham is very humble. And that humility comes from dealing with a, great, with a gracious God, but, but with a holy God, because you're recognizing your sinfulness. And you come to the Lord always, 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 humbly. But then grace. Just grace is just recognizing the, that you've received the undeserved favor of God. Undeserved favor of God. You've received, you've done nothing. And the Lord has been gracious to you. And so Abraham doesn't hold back. He's, he's very gracious. When the world sees us, they should see this kind of, of grace. Let me show you a couple passages from the New Testament. 1 John chapter 4. I'm sorry, 1 John chapter... I'm sorry, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 14. Because we see this very thing in the life of Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 14. John was describing Jesus when he came to earth. This is kind of in, in broad brush generic terms. First John I'm sorry, John chapter one and verse fourteen. He says this the word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is an amazing thing. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. How would you characterize him, John? What are the two things that stand out, John? Full of grace and truth. He knew the truth. He was prepared to deliver that truth. But he was so gracious in doing that. Can you imagine every, every dialogue that Christ had? was full of grace. Full of truth, but full of grace. He held back. At just the right time. He was aggressive at just the right time. He was full of grace. Perfectly perfectly dished out grace, if you will. And Christ is our example. Paul, in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, give you another passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul was... He, he, he tempted to be the same way in verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience. His own conscience bears witness that, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, he's talking about his approach to them, the way he came to them was, was holiness and godly sincerity, not with fleshly Wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially toward you. Folks, people are looking at our life. They should see evidence that God has worked a tremendous work in their lot, in our lives. And they should see God's grace on display. We are to be humble and we're to be gracious to other people. In fact, it's commanded if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Um, it's very well spelled out here. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. But only such a word is good for building up what is needed so that it will give grace to those who hear. Even our words. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. We're to be very gracious people. 
Do we have the right to be forceful? Do we have the command to be forceful? Many times we do. But we're to hold that back. We're to be gracious to people. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. It says, let the words, let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should ask or you should answer each person. Every person, every dialogue that you have should be gracious dialogue. Be salt. Be, remember your place. But there's grace. There's grace. Those who experience God's grace, folks, those who experience God's grace will exhibit God's grace. They're, they're going to be gracious to other people. What do people say about you? Full of grace and truth? What do, what do people say? Ah, oh, he just complains all the time. You, you're with him and just, just complain. Oh, he's so negative. Or, or he's so bitter. There's just bitterness. There's a lot of bitterness there. Or gossip. Or just critical. Just critical of everything. Nothing's good. The world's going to hell. Everything's terrible. Or self-focused. There's no grace there. It's just, it's all about me. Just self-focused. Or needy. It just drains you. You, you get around him and he just drain you. Or, or do they see grace? Do they see the grace of Christ in every conversation? Do they see, do they see grace? And Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 verse, thir- verse 3 says, Consider your others more important than ourselves. In every conversation, folks, we can be, we can be gracious. Let's go back to our passage. You see, Abraham's faith was, was evident and, and it was seen through the, his gracious dealings with other people. And one last thing I want to point out to you, and that's Abraham's mature faith um, had an eternal perspective. It had an eternal focus in verse uh, 27. I'm sorry, in verse 31. Therefore, he called the place Beersheba, because there the two of them swore an oath. So they cut a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Picol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines many days. Now, what I want you to see here is just the contrast of these two powerful men in his day, in their day. Both of them powerful men. But notice the contrast. Abimelech, he was searching for something. He comes to Abraham. He sees that God is obviously dealing with him. He comes to Abraham. and He doesn't ask him about his God. He just says, obviously God's at work in your life. He doesn't really care about Abraham's God. And he just went back to his ungodly people. What did he want? He just wanted security for his people. If you go back to verse 23, or verse 24, he says, uh, deal, uh, so you don't deal falsely with me, and with my offspring, and with my posterity. What's he doing? He's building a name for himself. 
He's building a nation for himself. He's got grandiose ideas and he just wants Abraham's security. He doesn't want Abraham's God. He just wants the security that Abraham's God can provide. So he didn't ask anything about Abraham's God. And so he just goes away. He, he, he is pursuing, he's seeking things that are just temporal. This world is passing away. This earthly stuff, just self-focused. He's just consumed with himself. And it's all going to pass away. And he's building a name for himself. He's building his own kingdom here. We don't even know his real name. Abimelech is probably just a title. It's what most uh, most theologians believe. And you study those things. It's probably just a title. We don't even know his name. When you go back to Genesis chapter 17, I'm going to point out this in verse 7. I want you to notice. This is how God works, though. And I will establish my covenant with between me and you and your seed after you throughout the, their generations for an everlasting covenant, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give you and your seed after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Abraham is probably reminded of this. He sees this king, this ungodly king, pursuing a name for himself, a a kingdom. and, And God just says, Abraham, you follow me. You trust me. I'll just give you this stuff. And so there's a settledness here. And what does it cause Abraham to do? He just goes right to the Lord. His focus is God and he worships God. What does that have to do with anything? He looks at the ungodly king, though, and the ungodly king is pursuing these things that he, he's trying to hang on to things that he really can't hang on to. But by faith, Abraham is, is trusting the Lord. And, and it causes Abraham to worship the Lord. And he, and he calls on the name of Yahweh, specific the name of God, and the characteristic of that particular God, of our God, is an everlasting God. An everlasting God. That's an amazing thing. Everlasting God. He doesn't see time and and days or years or even decades or centuries. He's beyond time. He he is a God of all eternity from beginning to end. This produces a worship in Abraham's mind and in his life. And he just turns to to God saying, I'm so glad I don't have to pursue these things. You're going to take care of me. Even after I'm dead, my, my uh, offspring, my posterity, you're going to take care of these things. What a wonderful thought. What a wonderful thought. Folks, we, we trust an eternal God. Now, you cannot, you can only trust your eternal destiny to an eternal God. In Genesis chapter 6, I think you'll see it on the the screen. Genesis chapter 6 is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I can look at the screen. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the gracious gift of God is what? Eternal life. You can only get eternal life from eternal God. And that's our God, folks. Abraham's perspective was, was, was just God. 
He's just focused on God, looking at God. And we trust this same God. Was Paul's faith visible? How about Daniel? Was his faith visible? Was Moses' faith visible? Peter's faith? Was it, is it visible? Every one of God's servants, their faith was seen. You could see it. They were gracious people and their focus was upon an everlasting God. A God of all eternity. That would be here far long after we're dead and gone. And we trust our soul to Him. He is a God of all eternity. From beginning to end, we trust our salvation to this God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for being that kind of God. You are God to be worshipped. Father, our, our hearts sing out in praise to You because of who You are, because You're an everlasting God. We thank You for that thought. Lord, as we come to this communion table, prepare. I pray that You prepare our hearts. Help us to deal with any sin, anything that would be in our lives that would cause us to not be able to partake. And we thank You for these things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.